Welcome back to Real Presence Live. I'm Roxanne Solomon, and I have Father Kyle Metzger here. And hello, Father. What's going on in the vocations world these days? You know, this is, um, it's somewhat of a quieter time uh, in the vocation office. Uh, things get much more active in the spring, you know, when young men are really considering what's happening next year. And so that's when they start contacting the vocation director about applying to seminary. So in the vocation office now in the fall, it's a lot of events. Okay. We have discernment retreats. We've had what we call Operation Andrew dinners, where young guys who are kind of thinking about the priesthood, we invite them over to the bishop's house for a dinner, um, evening prayer. Um, and then just uh, the opportunity to ask questions, to talk about discernment and the priesthood. So um, a lot of events going on right now. What are some of the common questions these young men ask? By far, uh, the, the biggest thing, uh, young discerners now, like, you know, uh, older teenagers, young 20s, they want clarity. They want to know for sure that the Lord wants them to enter the convent or to apply to seminary. And the challenge is, is, is um, getting them to understand the Lord isn't going to make it 100% clear. He didn't give perfect clarity to the Blessed Mother. <laughs> okay, how can this be since I have no relations with a man? She didn't have clarity. And so young kids want clarity and they resist making a change or filling out an application or visiting a convent until they know with, with you know, crystal clarity that this is what the Lord wants, wants them to do. So it's getting them, instead of looking for clarity, to build trust in the Lord that He will provide. Just walk through the door. All right. All right. Well, maybe we'll hear some more of those kinds of questions here. Call in 877-795-0122 with your questions. We're here and ready to receive those questions. What's ever on your mind? You got a question about scripture. You got a question about the saints. You got a question about something in the mass. You got a question about a sacrament. Maybe how to do something in the church. Whatever you got a question on. Maybe there was a discussion that took place in your family at the dinner table. Maybe something that your coworker asked you and you didn't know how to explain something that like you've been doing for 30 years and then you thought, why am I doing that? What does that mean? Give us a call. It'd be more than happy to uh, to provide you with some insight and some help. So give us a call 877-795-0122. Once again, 877-795-0122. You can also send your questions to Facebook. So that's another way to reach us. I have a question, Father. Go for it. Okay. So I brought this my... This isn't... You're not going to start with a really tough one, are no, you, right? No, I don't think so. S softball. It's very softball timely. first. Okay. Timely. Okay. So I went with my youngest son to the cemetery last weekend. We went to the Requiem Mass at the uh, cathedral here yes. in Latin, which was a beautiful experience. And then I said, hey, we should go to the cemetery. So... About 10, 30, 11 at night, we went. It was closed, so we just prayed on the outside. We did our prayers for the for the dead. And I posted a little picture on Facebook. And then one of my non-Catholic friends said, why? She, she sent it private, so that was nice. We had a nice little conversation. Why do you do that? Why do you pray for the dead? Isn't that something we don't have to do anymore? Because I brought up Maccabees and some different things, but she said, but that's the old, that's the old way. We don't need to do that anymore. So, Father, help me. <laughs> yeah. It, it goes down to our ancient old uh, uh, understanding of, of uh, life after death and the reality of purgatory, that heaven is the place for those who love the Lord perfectly. There's no sin, there's no distraction 
in heaven, it's a perfect, exclusive love focused on the, uh, the beatific vision. Now, I don't know of anybody who dies perf- loving the Lord perfectly. There's always some division. There's always some dis- uh, distraction in the, in the heart of the human person. And so, well, if your heart is divided and you die, well, you're not ready for heaven, right? Mm-hmm. Heaven would actually be very... <laughs> you know speaking metaphorically painful for you you know that you you don't you don't have the heart ready to love god and so in the in the in the lord's mercy his accommodation of the human person he provides kind of a last step where you can you can get ready for the lord clearly you've decided to serve him you are a baptized christian um so you're you're you 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 love the lord that heaven is for you but you need kind of some last growth. You need to deepen your love a little bit more. And in his mercy, he provides what we would call term uh, purgatory in order to perfect that love. Kind of maybe a, 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 a funny analogy could be like purgatory is the summer school for life. You know, what is summer school for? It's for all the things that you were supposed to learn in regular school, but you didn't. Okay, you passed, but you need to kind of tie up some loose ends. Purgatory is kind of like the summer school for life. You passed, but there were some things you didn't learn, you didn't love enough in in this life, and so we're just going to kind of shore up those loose ends before we go on. She, she, the same friend who asked me this question said, "I've heard that it's a holding a holding place for for those who don't yeah, uh, whatever." Is is it? How do here's is it a place? The, here's the thing where it's, it's like we have to grasp at realities mm-hmm. because the afterlife, including heaven, including hell, it's not a place and there's not time. You know, time and place are something that are part of the physical material world. And so, you know, heaven doesn't last a million years. You know, hell doesn't last a million years. And it's not like heaven is up and hell is down. It's not like you can get in a space shuttle and go to heaven, and you can't dig deep enough to find hell. It's outside of space and time. And so oftentimes, because we are completely limited by space and time, we try to um, put those categories into the afterlife. And so people ask questions like, well, how long are you in purgatory? You know, Mm -hmm. if you have one venial sin, how long in purgatory? Those are terms that you can't apply to purgatory. It's not a it's not a time and it's not a place like and you said like a holding spot. Mm-hmm. Well, you're bringing in physical dimensions when right. you do that. So we we kind of grasp at analogies like summer school, but ultimately those are going to limp. They're going to fall mm-hmm. apart because heaven, hell, purgatory, there's no place and there's no time in those uh in those realities. Mm-hmm. So it's diff- it's difficult. Mm-hmm. It's difficult for us to perfectly understand them yeah but we are made to feel sense this that there's more than this world that that seems a really natural there's something in us that yes brings us there one of my uh, most favorite saints is saint augustine and of course he wrote uh, the very first autobiography of all of human history uh, the confessions Mm -hmm. and in that he has the line our hearts are made for unto our hearts are made unto yours, O Lord, and they are restless until they rest in you. Mm-hmm. And I, everybody reaches at at some point, oftentimes through suffering, you know, or through disappointment, that things are not making me happy in this world when I thought they would. It's because things won't 
fulfill you there's that your heart is not made for this world it's made for the next and it's made for god and it's going to be restless until you find that Mm -hmm. and ultimately ultimately that restlessness will never subside until finally you are in heaven but you can move in that direction okay well again you can call in we're at our straight talk segment 877-795-0122 or through facebook we do have uh, a question from a listener is there a time that jesus specifically condemns suicide as a mortal sin or is it just the church that defined that and then a follow-up, if, if it was just the church, then how do non-Catholics understand suicide? As far as Jesus specifically condemning suicide, I wonder, you know, if in the Old Testament there would be um, prohibitions, you know, in the Mosaic Law, Book of uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, things like that. I'm, I, I'm not as familiar with that. I would, I would imagine certainly in the Old Testament, but I can't cite something specifically. As far as Jesus, one thing that comes to mind is his comments on Judas's sin. When Judas betrays him, better if that man were never to be born, Judas committed suicide. Okay. And so and in the, the, the church is even, you know, a psychologist's understanding of suicide, it's a form of murder. Literally the word sui comes from the Latin meaning the self, and side means killing. So like pesticide, herbicide, um, homicide. Um, side means murder. So literally the word suicide, suicide, is the, the killing of oneself, the murder of oneself. And so it would put it into the context of, of, uh, of the fifth commandment of murder and the victim of the murder is, is yourself. I would, uh, so I would connect that to, to, to Judas's sin and his suicide that uh, the church has never defined anybody, not even Judas, of um, definitively being in hell. It's just left that question open and God, uh, God will be the only one who will speak to that reality. Um, we would hope that Judas, even Judas, would be in heaven. We have a desire that every soul that God creates enters heaven, even the greatest sinners. Jesus' own words, however, are very uh, sobering about, uh, about that. And so in the church's theology, has always seen suicide as, as, a, as a form of murder, a tragic uh, form of, of murder. Um, and so I would, to her question, I would connect it to Jesus' comments on Judas. How do you, though, this is my question, console someone whose loved one has has died that way? Because we know do yeah. know more about the psychology now. Psychology has helped us a lot mm-hmm. of understanding um, many of these sorts of dilemmas. When, when, a, when a parent or somebody comes to you as a priest, this will often happen in preparations for the funeral and stuff. Of course, you're always very uh, uh, sympathetic and accommodating, and psychology can help us that many people are, are struggling with depression or other mental illnesses that, that culminate in this sort of action and how i've always uh presented that to people is we have hope right Mm -hmm. in things like the church has never defined anybody uh to be definitively in hell that there is always hope that god will 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 provide for 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 the soul even in um in the most dire of of situations and so at a at a a funeral homily of a suicide and um, um you always speak of that hope in the resurrection, which ultimately is at any funeral, because we're all sinners. Um, we've all fallen from the Lord's grace. 
and so people who've 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 committed that sin there's there's hope for even them and we leave it in in the mercy of god that um he will pro- provide give clarity uh, uh to the mind of maybe the something that the person didn't have the capacity for here in this life mm, nice well coming back again to my original question from my friend who is a non-catholic who wondered uh why we pray for the dead i, I feel like one of the things she ended with which i thought was very lovely she said you know I just think we can't pray enough. So go ahead and keep praying because mm-hmm. prayers can't hurt anything. Prayers can't hurt. And if and if you're if you're if you're praying for, you know, maybe something like that and those prayers can't be answered for whatever reason, the Lord takes those prayers, takes that desire and applies it to something even better that's going to be more rewarding, more grace-filled. So you're right. You pray for anything and everything and the Lord, the Lord will take those prayers and, and apply it to whatever is going to bring about your greatest sanctity and your greatest holiness. Prayer is a, a wonderful thing and it, it is very hopeful. Um, well, we're, we're waiting for another question. We are at 877-795-0122. We have a priest here. I know that there's many times throughout the weeks that I have a question and I think, oh, if I could just ask my priest. I usually make a little list and then I go in to talk to my spiritual director, <laughs> but sometimes the list gets a little long. So yeah. here is your opportunity. Like This is not intimidating here. I'm sure people have questions out there and we're, we're uh, looking forward to hearing from them. In the meantime, uh, today is, uh, you had mentioned the, the saint, uh, saint Josephat is that how you say I believe it is yeah Josephat um, yeah his he, kind of where he fits in church history uh, is very helpful um, Je- uh, Jehoshaphat lived in the 16th century he was raised in what would be modern-day uh, Poland I suppose but what's interesting about him that might be insightful for the listeners is he was a Ruthenian Catholic a Ruthenian Catholic. We are Roman Catholics. Probably most all of our listeners out there are Roman Catholics. And so what a Ruthenian Catholic is in the category, the umbrella of what we call Eastern Catholics. Many people, especially Roman Catholics, are very misunderstood on what these Eastern Catholics are. And when they hear Eastern Catholic, they think of Eastern Orthodox which is totally different. Okay, the Orthodox uh, are, are, uh, broke off from the Roman Catholic Church uh, at the turn of the millennium back in uh, 1064. And so there, are, uh, there was a rupture there that, that still, a thousand years later, we're working on. Eastern Catholics are in a totally different category. They are in full union with Rome. All of their sacraments are valid. Their priesthood is is valid. What it was is when the when the Catholic Church started, you kind of had what everything was going on in the West, Rome, and then you had a lot of other fervor activity in the East, which would have been in Greece. And they were very different cultures. And so, kind of the liturgies, the style of music, the language, Latin versus Greek created different um, kind of aspects and colors and emphases, but it was all the Catholic Church. It was all founded. Now, um, the Roman Church, the Western Church, the population just flourished. Okay, And so now most Catholics are Roman Catholics, but there was all of these, these other churches on the Eastern side of the empire that, although smaller in number, still exist today. There's 24 of them. 24 Eastern Catholics. Um, today we celebrate Joseph. Had he was a bishop and martyr as a Ruthenian Catholic, which is in full union with the Pope. There's you could go to a Ruthenian Mass 
they wouldn't call it the mass, but it would be the Ruthenian liturgy. The style of music would be very different from Gregorian chant. Uh, the language would not be Latin, certainly not English. And so some of the prayers would be a little different, but you could receive the Eucharist. Mm. And it would be the, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. There are Byzantine Catholics. That's probably the most well-known. Uh, Serbia. There's a lot in the East Coast of the United States, Byzantine Catholics. Maronite Catholics in Lebanon. Syro-Malabar Catholics. There are predominant in India. The Chaldean Catholics. We may have heard a lot about those uh, because they're in Iraq. And so when we've had the, like the wars in Iraq and stuff, you hear about the persecution of the Chaldeans, those are Catholics. So that's why we're so, um, so worried about their persecution. The Coptics in, Eng and, uh, in Egypt, Armenians, Mozarabic. And then if you ever go to Italy, you want to go to Milan. Because in Milan, you have Ambrosian Catholics. So that's the one that mm. most Westerners could, could go. You go to Mass in Milan, and it will be very different from what you'd encounter in Rome. But uh, they grew out of uh, Ambrose. So that's, they're in the Western Empire, but we still consider them Eastern Catholics because their liturgy is a little different. So go to Milan, go to Mass in Milan, and you'll be kind of delighted by the unique uh, style of that Mass. So those are There's Eastern so Catholics. Yeah, wow. There's so much to learn. Don't confuse Eastern Catholics with Eastern <laughs> Orthodox. Mm -hmm. Very different, uh, but very common misunderstanding. Okay. Well, I'd love to go more into that, but we we better get to our question here. We, we have got a someone. question. Yes, good, good, good. Do. Yeah. There is a diaconate training for single or married men of a parish to serve within the diocese. Is there a comparable training or program for single or married women to serve in the same capacity? Um, specifically, no, there isn't. Um, to serve in, in a parish as a deacon, that's um, a, a sacrament of holy orders. It's one of the three ministries of that order. You've got deacon, you've got priest, and you've got bishop. And so uh, most dioceses have a training program. Uh, in the Diocese of Fargo, where I am, it's a five-year uh, program. And so, um, you know, men will apply, and there's an, an interview process, and we discern if, the, if there seems to be a calling to this ministry, and then he will go through that, uh, that formation. We really don't call it training. We call it formation, because it's something about changing the whole human person. Now, in many dioceses, including Fargo here, we do have the wives go through that formation alongside their husbands, just so their husbands are going to be going through so like a deepening spirituality, learning a lot, and we want the wives to be part of that. And so usually the wives, you know, are, are uh, come, you know, and their their faith is deepened alongside their 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 husbands pursuing the diaconate. So there there is that 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 possibility for the wife of a deacon, but aside from that. There wouldn't be a, a holy orders training uh, formation uh, for that. Um, there could be other things with uh, like maybe lay Carmelites or lay Benedictines where there's a, a spirituality, a formation that you can be part of for that that would certainly be open, um, open uh, for women in that sort of formation, but not, not for the diaconate. Okay. All right. Well, again, you can call 877-795-0122. I'm Roxanne Solonen, and I have Father Kyle Metzger sitting right next to me answering your questions. And so uh, we have a few that we, we, we kind of threw out as, as possible topics for today as well. Um, earlier, we talked about raising children for heaven. What does that mean exactly? And how could we make that more practical, Father? A couple of things come to mind. Yeah. 
I, in my work in vocations, I encounter, you know, a lot of young people, young adults who are discerning religious life, doing something grand with their life. Before I was a priest, I was also a school teacher. I taught middle school. So I encountered hundreds of kids over my years as a school teacher. Um, I help out at a Catholic high school now, so I see you know high school students a lot. And you notice certain patterns uh, with with the youth that some people just to seem to have a far more mature faith beyond their peers, and oftentimes they don't realize it. Um, there's there's a depth of their spirituality. There's a clarity. Uh, there's a peacefulness about their life it even you know their faith kind of uh seeps into the the psychological even the academic and the pattern that i've noticed is these 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 young people not exclusively but predominantly usually it comes from the family it comes from the family there's there's a peacefulness uh, of devotion uh in that family that it just uh, the, the kids take it on and they, you know they they don't even realize that they're probably not grateful for it. That will come later once they reach adulthood. But you know, for raising raising children, um, we want them to be healthy physically. We want them to be uh, uh, intellectually strong. Those are important. But the Lord wants you to raise a saint. That's the greatest criteria. He doesn't have to be a professional athlete. He doesn't have to be on the honor roll. He says, I, I want you to raise a saint in my kingdom. And so uh, the focus of the spirituality of the faith, of taking them to the sacraments often, and not delegating that too quickly to other people. Of course, you know, uh, the priest is going to help, the Catholic schools are going to help, the formation programs are going to help, but really the Lord um, at your baptism put that responsibility on you as a parent. And in my work with youth, I've seen that, you know, when parents really do double down. Of course, this is not, you know, perfect. Sometimes you'll, 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 you'll do all you can and the child has its own free will and you can't take um, all, the, all the blame for that. But, but I've seen a pattern, those, those, those students, there's often a very a deep devotion in the family and the kids benefit from it. So what do you think the parents did then? I, I think you kind of hinted at the sacraments and things like that. But there's, a, there's a sacrament. It's something that is, that is it seems to be uh, continuous, very normal in the, in the life of the family. Like in the evenings, instead of just gathering around the TV for multiple hours or everybody texting each other, like the family prays together. Oftentimes it's the rosary. But uh, I was talking with a youth at a retreat last week and... Um, the family was reading a book together, a spiritual book together. So they'd read a couple of pages together as a family. The kids would sit on the couch, mom and dad, the chairs, and they just, the parents would read the book. And their kids are like ages from like five to 20. Okay, there's a huge age span there. And so the young kids are probably not gonna take as much as the older teenagers. But the family's talking about that. That has a big impact. And you know, the kids are gonna complain, oh, you know, this is so boring, I don't wanna sit here. But the parents do it anyway, and the kids benefit from that. Mm -hmm. And so it's things like that, you know, common prayer of um, taking the whole family goes to confession together. You know, it's Tuesday night, they've got parish confessions Tuesday night, so we're each going one by one, hop in the car. It just becomes the normal part of life that religion is not relegated to Sunday. Religion is not relegated to the school. Religion is not relegated to Wednesday night. Um, 
No, like we live and breathe. You know, when <laughs> when I was in first grade, I remember school got out for the summer, and then the and the Sunday, my mom uh, woke us up and would say we had to get ready for mass. I said, "No, mom, it's summer." Like we're we're out for the summer, and she's like, "No, you don't take breaks from mass, like from school, you do." And so that was just part of my up. This is just the normal part of life. It's not unique to this or that other area of our life. It's pervasive, and if you can set that in in the family, oh my goodness, that's gonna that's gonna branch off into all aspects of of your of your child's uh, personhood, their personalities. Wonderful. Well, we uh, are getting close to the end of this, so we want to make sure you have a chance to uh, send in your question, call in your question at 877-795-0122 during our fastly uh, coming to the end straight talk uh, segment. So uh, do sneak that in if you can. Um, Father Metzger is here waiting for your question. And uh, um, what what about this question, Father? How can we be a light of Christ to others right now? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's the the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the light of Christ, uh, I'll take take up the words of the Second Vatican Council where they, they said to be the laity, to be the leaven in the world, leaven that aspect of bread that makes it grow and rise, um, um, the yeast. Um, it's important that you that you bring your faith, your devotion um, out into the marketplaces, into the job, you know, into the into the grocery store, that um, that that just becomes a normal um, a part of your of your being. It's it's oftentimes said. What's the phrase? Um, in social sitting situations, you don't want to talk about religion or politics, right? Where like the two things that matter most yeah, to I people say, what else is and, have, <laughs> and have the biggest impacts on your lives, and we. And we're not supposed to talk about those things. Now, of course, we understand, you know, where the phrase comes from. Those can be delicate areas and people can get animated rather quickly and the, this, the conversations can get heated. But we, maybe we can do better mm-hmm. with those two topics. But to say we should then avoid them, I just think that's not the right approach. And so people said, well, this is work. I can't talk about my faith. Well, maybe you have to talk about it, you know, in a certain way. Okay. Um, but, uh, but to avoid it, like, could you put a crucifix on your desk? Right. You got mm-hmm. pictures of your family and you got pictures of the vacation and you got the fish mounted on the wall, which are all important aspects of your life. But isn't God first? Could you? put a crucifix on that wall could you frame a picture of jesus and so maybe like you know you're not bringing up jesus in the break room maybe you could maybe Mm -hmm. you should but maybe if you're totally uncomfortable with that would anybody at work know that you're catholic well maybe if you had a a a crucifix on your wall or a picture of the blessed mother and somebody walks in they said hey uh, uh, who who is that Oh, let me tell you about her. <laughs> okay, so so how can you be the leaven in the world, the light of Christ? Those are opportunities. You know, we had Ashley on earlier for evangelization. So uh, use what's comfortable for you, what uh, uh, what works, but. Uh, but you got to do something. You got to do something to be the light in the world. You got to light the candle and you got to bring it somewhere. And maybe as you're kind of hinting at, if, if that discussion isn't possible, 
we can always be doing things constantly. And I yeah. feel like the more the the world around us becomes darker, there's more and more. I mean, even the small little things are making more of an impact yeah. because the darkness is kind of encroaching a bit. Yeah. At my, uh, my home parish here in Fargo, uh, there's a, a wonderful ministry that was started up by one of the deacons, Deacon Bruce Dahl. The Men of the Cross mm-hmm, is what mm-hmm. it's known as. And Deacon Bruce Dahl started wearing this prominent crucifix as a necklace. He noticed people kept asking him about it. This wasn't his intention, but people started asking him about it, like, you know, going through the cashier. Hey, you have a crucifix. Uh, Where did you get that? That was the crack in the door for him to then talk about his faith. Now Mm -hmm. that's spread everywhere. You see Mm -hmm. these crucifix, all these guys wearing this men of the cross. That's one thing you can do is, is providing an opportunity for uh, uh, for a conversation. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Yeah, it's a great ministry. Uh, we do have one more question. Adam from South Dakota has a comment about the distinction that you made about Eastern Orthodox and Eastern, Eastern Catholics. Um, Are you there, Adam? I am here, yes. Oh, good. <laughs> Adam, uh, can, you, can you explain your question to me? Oh, sure. Uh, first, I really enjoy listening to your programming that you get. It's very nice. Um, Thank you. The question I got, well, when you made the comment uh, distinguishing Roman, Catholic, Roman Catholic relationship with Eastern Orthodox and Eastern uh, Roman, or Eastern Catholics, you said something like um, uh, the Eastern Catholics are in full communion with the Roman Catholic Church, and they are uh, have valid sacraments and valid uh, priesthood, um, which I, I take is kind of like implying that the the Orthodox Catholic Eastern Orthodox do not have um, valid sacraments or uh, valid priesthood. And I'm not sure if that's true or not. So if you could clarify that, I know they don't have full communion with the Roman Catholic Church, but you're uh, right. As far as uh, valid sacraments and valid, uh, I just don't. I just wanted to have that clarified because we don't want any more division than we need to. You're absolutely right, and thank you for the question. And you are spot you are spot on, Adam. You are absolutely right. When the Orthodox split back in ten uh, ten sixty four, I believe it was, um, they they had bishops. They had bishops that uh, that that uh, that had disagreements with the with the Holy Father. They caused the split, and so because they were bishops, their ordinations were valid. And so when they ordained priests, those are valid ordinations. So there certainly was theological differences. Um, the filioque is kind of oftentimes what it's attributed to their their understanding of the relationship of the Trinity. But you are absolutely right. They had bishops, so their ordinations were valid, and their their further ordinations of other priests and bishops. And of course, since you have valid bishops and you have valid priests, that's the Eucharist. So you are absolutely right, Adam. Thank you for noticing that distinction and uh, pointing it out that the the Eucharist exists in the Orthodox the Orthodox Church. And we will be right back with more real presence live after this break you won't want to miss it so stay tuned <laughs> 